the World Talk Radio Network. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. If you teach history in a high school classroom, over the course of a career, you may reach several thousand students. If you are a history professor who writes a book about Civil War, you may get lucky and reach tens of thousands of readers. Museums may reach hundreds of thousands over the course of several decades. But if you want to reach tens of millions of people and teach them all they may ever know about American history, you have to be John Jakes, author of the legendary best-selling North and South trilogy, as well as several other best-selling historical fiction novels. Please join us for a talk with John Jakes today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University here in Greenville, North Carolina. Now in the Big East, no longer in Conference USA for those who follow that material but not speaking for the university or the history department or Conference USA, the Big East, or any other athletic conference, just talking for myself and our guest likewise will give his own opinions only, as always, on Civil War Talk Radio. It is a delightfully gray and overcast Friday afternoon, uh, December 7th, the day that lives in infamy, but now it's 2012. And it is uh, the way the weather should be in December. North Carolina frequently has, <clears throat> excuse me, beautiful, clear, sunny days throughout most of what what ought to be winter time, and it it gets it gets on the nerves after a while. But today it's a good old fashioned overcast, gray, blustery day. Could be a little colder. Could even have some snow. That would be nice. But and then it's going to get up to. 70 next week and I'll be complaining again but won't be here as this will be our last show for 2012 our last live show uh, next week is commencement here on campus and I'll be talking to the happy graduates and their relieved parents and then we'll take uh, the holiday break uh, Civil War Talk Radio and perhaps World Talk Radio will spend time with their families, and we'll be back uh, January 11th with the, the next live show. Michael Weeks will be with us, author of The Complete Civil War Road Trip Guide and several other very detailed and fascinating 
road trip guides to help you plan your 2013 Civil War adventuring. On January 18th, uh, next week, we'll have uh, Anthony J. Goggin, author of The Last Battle of the Civil War. It's about uh, the U.S. versus Lee, 1861-1883, legal case uh, between the federal government and the Lee family. And... Uh, uh, a story not often told and an interesting one that we'll, we'll track through that. Uh, I'll be away at a department chair's retreat the following week, but we'll be back with more shows. Brian Dirk will be with us in February to talk about Abraham Lincoln, rescheduled from last uh, semester. Uh, uh, so we'll have lots of good things in the week, in, in the, the year ahead. Uh, well, it is Friday afternoon, and I must ask before we start uh, rhetorically to everyone what is it about friday afternoon it's final exam week here on campus and this has people tense but uh the end of the semester the the craziness just comes out and last friday as i was getting ready to do the show maybe half an hour before uh, 3 p.m eastern time uh the email suddenly started blowing up there was a a crisis within the department um the the central focus was our annual holiday party being scheduled to take place at a bowling alley instead of a banquet hall for a, a change. Uh, some people liked it, some didn't, but it turned into the kind of, of tempest that only academics can stir up among themselves uh, and began to tap into deeper issues and political things came up. And, and suddenly my email screen was filled with very uh, upset colleagues and things that had to be dealt with immediately. Meanwhile, there was a show to do, and if I sounded distracted during last week's show, I apologize to you uh, listeners and uh, uh, to our last guest. So I was looking forward to everybody calming down a little bit, and uh, the, the tempest blew over. Everybody was back at work, writing exams, grading, until 2.30 today. And then just a few minutes ago, one of the principals comes in my office and wants to talk about it again. And I had to uh, say, no, I've, I've got a show to do. We'll talk later. But it, it it's just like my two standard poodles at home are willing to leave me alone unless I sit on the sofa in front of the TV with my wife and lean back. As soon as I lean back and touch the back of the, the, the cushion indicating that I'm comfortable, the dogs become frantic for attention and, and will not stop till they get something. Likewise, the moment it's time to do Civil War talk radio, the collective faculty must have my attention at that time. Well, I'm here with you uh, and our guest today, and that's that's how we're going to stay. Before we dive in, a reminder, as always, to learn more about uh, past shows or to hear this show. Well, actually, you're already hearing this show, but uh, if you're hearing it live and want to download it later, it's to be the link is to be found at www impedimentsofwar.org the best site on the internet. Mark Gaffney runs it, keeps us up to date on Civil War Talk Radio happenings and you can find links to the past shows as well as a a PayPal button where you can click to send donations. You can get a copy of one of my books. Um, Even to think about the amount of royalties received over a lifetime for uh, the, the, the few books I've been associated with uh, causes me to to turn pale with shame and humiliation in the face of our, our guest who we have today, uh, the author, uh, New York Times bestselling author of multiple books that, as I said in the introduction, have taught many people 
possibly all they know or all they remember about American history. Uh, he is John Jakes. Welcome to the show. Glad you could join you, us sir. today. Uh, it, it's a, a real pleasure to have you here. The uh, uh, Typically, when, when I do this show each week, I, I, I was contacted by your office, and I don't know how familiar they made you with the, the operation here. It's a one-man uh, production at this end uh, with the help of, of the engineers, right. of course, and, and uh, a few others. But I typically read uh, uh, something by the author the week before, and in your case, the shelf of books is enormous. Uh, there was no way to read everything <laughs> you've written in one week, uh, but I, right. I went at it bravely. Uh, but let me start with, with your writing, uh, uh, with about the writing rather than the reading. You originally were in advertising and then I was, Jerry, for 17 years. Um, I was selling fiction at the time, but, uh, not operating as a full-time writer. Uh, about 1970 that changed and I've been doing it ever since. So what, what made that change in 1970? Well, <laughs> as often happens in the advertising department and the advertising business, we lost the account. <laughs> oh, well, that, that uh, so you had uh, writing to fall back on initially. Yes, I did, uh, that, and that's been good. And uh, uh, it was a couple of years after that that uh, the first book of the Kent Family Chronicles came along, and. From then on, it's been relatively smooth sailing. I could do pretty much what I wanted to do, and uh, I was glad of that. Well, that, that is an enviable position to be in, certainly. What what moved you to? You'd written some science fiction, but but historical fiction yes. is what you're, of course, best known for. What moved you to change genres? Well, I was asked to write the uh, bicentennial series, as it was first called. It was supposed to be five volumes tracing a fictional family through 200 years of American history. Well, I plodded slowly through uh, eight volumes, which finally ended in 1892. And the publisher, because of the sales, they were spectacular, was not unhappy. So uh, that's where it stood. When you write something on that scale, do you did you plot things out in advance? Uh, taking another trilogy, a lot of listeners know uh, the Lord of the Rings. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien always said it, he just, you know, the tale grew in the telling. He he didn't know where the characters were going at any given moment. Well, to a certain extent, yes, but not so much with historical fiction, Jerry, because you really have a framework. Um, you can't let the Civil War or the period leading up to it or reconstruction afterwards uh, just grow on its own uh, it is what it is and uh, the timeline is fairly well defined so I always kept it as a credo not to never change history uh, rather to try to maneuver fictional characters within that framework um, so it's a little different they just don't uh, go wild so to speak I mean, that's an interesting, brings up an interesting thought, I guess. If you're, it, as I was reading North and South this week, and I have never read 700 pages more quickly or with more pleasure in my life, I will say. It was very entertaining. Um, as I did that, I'm thinking to myself, 
I know how the story is going to go. I know, I know there's going to be a war. The characters you know, suspect that, but that does give you. Uh, on the one hand, uh, it, it, it straightjackets you. You can't have, you can't surprise the audience by not having a war. But right. you have. To, true, does but, it help but, or hurt to have that tension built in? The, the trick is, and I finally mastered it, was to how to maneuver your characters into that historical background and have their story remain interesting and true to the record. I have always, of the historical novels, operated on one principle. What if this is the only book on this particular period or this particular subject that the reader ever reads about that period? I want it to be as accurate as I could make it within a limited time, not having a whole lifetime to write it. Uh, so that becomes a fairly strong goal that I have stuck to, and it's worked. What, that you're probably right. That uh, I'm sure there are many people for whom your novels are their 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 last brush with history. If they've already graduated from high school and, and college, and, and they're not history readers, but but novel readers. So, what what level do you want to educate them to? As I was reading this, I was thinking, okay, if my first year students knew what knew the events you were talking about if they if they had read your books and absorbed them and mm-hmm. could give me the same thumbnail sketch of the Wilmot proviso that your characters give i'd right. be a happy professor uh it, it, are you aiming for like a first year college level uh no i'm just e- aiming for well let me go backwards just a minute uh, i grew up in in uh, the baptist church We had a wonderful minister who was always preaching about the unchurched. (laughs) Sometime in the past, that transmuted itself in my mind to the unhistoried, unhistoried people who are not familiar with our past. And that's why I've tried to tell them as much as I could in a pleasant and entertaining manner without, as I say, distorting the historical record. Well, that, that's a, a, a laudable goal, and it's one that everyone in, in the field of public history certainly works at, those who work in museums and uh, historic sites and so on. And, and mm-hmm. when I teach students public history, we, we talk about that's just the audience you're looking at, the, the ones who don't get a lot of history elsewhere. Well, um, I have received, as you might guess, over the years, who were coming on, 15 million copies of the North and South Trilogy in print, and now we've got the the e-books from Open Road, um, which is a delightful new way to attract readers, but uh, it generated a tremendous amount of mail, as you can imagine, over the years that comes into my website or my mailbox, and uh, the burden of it quite often is, well, I don't, Either I don't read books or I don't read history as a subject. And, and those are the people I like to hear from because they are the ones that I hope I can reach. That's a, a lot of responsibility. I, and that's something that occurred to me as I was reading your work that when you start out writing anything, if, if you just decide you're going to write a short story, anybody, any listener today just says, I think I'll write a short story, 
they're not responsible to anyone else. They they write what they want to write. Right. But once you've once you've reached fifteen million people, and 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 you've received these letters from your readers saying this is is what I know about history from from you. Does that heighten your sense of responsibility? To- yes, of course it does. Uh, I, I, I'm getting a little long in the tooth now, and uh, I take this responsibility very seriously. Uh, as I've often said, I don't knowingly distort the historical record in, in those novels. Uh, and if I do change something in a very tiny way, I've always acknowledged it in the afterward uh, for each book. So... I do take it seriously, um, and that's the best I can offer. Is that uh, it's something that is a a goal, a watchword, whatever you want to call it. Then I, I stick to it. Well, how do you prepare to write one of your historical novels? What, where, what, what is your research strategy? Where do you go? What, uh, what kind of things do you look at? Well. Um, in the case of the North and South Trilogy, for instance, I have always read about the Civil War. I have liked it as a subject, uh, never dreaming I would develop novels around the period. Um, and so I'd already done a lot of reading before I finally got to the North and South books in uh, the late 70s, early 80s. I had already read a good deal about the Civil War, but as I say, I discovered that the 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 period, the literature is it's a finite universe, and uh, I was a little surprised by that. But it's true. Um, sometimes you're lucky if you have one book about a given historical figure in the whole English-speaking canon. Uh, one book. And beyond that, when I got into the research for the North and South Trilogy. I did a lot of traveling, I did, as I did for the Kent family books. I would always go places that I had not visited. Some of the sites I had visited, like such as Gettysburg, but there were any number of them that I had never seen. So I took that as a duty to go and uh, be there, to walk the ground, so to speak. And I think between those two approaches the on-site visits and the uh, reading uh, i'm really just a frustrated graduate student you see that's all <laughs> i got a master's in english but <laughs> I, I never stopped being a, uh, a nerd if you want to put it that way um i was glad to have this combination of approaches and it stood me in good stead and that's the same way i operate for every book well, I, I suspect there are a lot of graduate students who are uh, uh secretly frustrated john jakes's out there who would love well, to have your writing ability we're going to take a short break and do an announcement or two and we're going to come back and talk more our guest is the legendary best-selling author john jakes i'm jerry prokopovich and this is civil war talk radio
have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop? Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. World Talk Radio presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with John Jakes, author of the North and South Trilogy, as well as other Civil War era historical novels on Secret Service, uh, Savannah, or A Gift for Mr. Lincoln, to name a couple others. Uh, we've been talking in our first segment about how uh, how uh, John Jakes came to write about uh, historical eras, uh, moving from advertising or science fiction into uh, into this era, and about the the responsibility that attends being a best-selling author, that when you know millions of people are pretty much getting all their history they're going to get from your books, uh, that, that one has to take it seriously. And uh, that shows, uh, John, that shows in your writing, certainly, the uh, in the afterword to uh, North and South, you mentioned, for example, the uh, the manuscripts that you studied of, of yes the uh, West Point manuscript from West Point mm-hmm. Th- that uh, that made an impression on you obviously well it did because uh, details of life at West Point in the eighteen forties fifties very sketchy very little in way of reference material but there was this one memoir written by a West Point graduate quite late in his life, I think it was in the early 20th century, um, describing what it was like to be a plebe and uh, to go through the academy. And that was a primary research uh, research source because there just aren't any uh, besides one or two scattered here and there. Um, today, of course, the Internet has spread the the scope of, of research uh, to unbelievable dimensions, uh, bigger than anything I ever dreamed of when I started writing these historical novels. Uh, I don't know if a book could be researched on exclusively online today. I I, I couldn't answer that, but <laughs> I've always said that, you know, each new novel is like enrolling in a new graduate course. 
You mm-hmm. learn something, and that's as important to me as writing a good story or being historically accurate. I, I learned as I go, and I never stop learning, and I never will. Well, that, that's uh, life would not be fun uh, without that. I would say, and, and that's right. it shows again in, in the writing. One one learns. As I was reading North and South, I, I really was thinking about uh, these issues we're discussing. I, I did not learn, for example, when you described the Wilmot Proviso or, or the, uh, the the Kansas-Nebraska Act and its effect on uh, the, the tensions growing in the 1840s and 1850s. Those are materials I teach to my students. I'm, they're, they're not sure. news to me, but by presenting them as you do in the context of how did the, this affect your specific characters, I can see how your readers would would have a, a hook to hang it on. They may not remember David Wilmot of Pennsylvania, but they can remember that this created a rift between uh, uh, two characters that they can identify with. That's that's well said, and it's exactly the truth of it. Now, you, you said... I, I've, you said something interesting in our first segment. Uh, you, you referenced a Baptist clergy who talked about the the unchurched, uh, yes. but one, and that led me to a question. I was trying to think how to how to introduce the topic appropriately, especially knowing that my mother frequently listens to this show. Uh, it's probably no no small part of the success that there's a lot of sex in this book, uh, more than all the other. Uh, uh, 200 episodes of Civil War talk radio put together. Well, uh, I, I would assume <laughs> sure, but it is a novel. Uh, they, they are uh-huh. novels. Uh, actually, I thought the sex was fairly restrained. Uh, I, it's not I graphic show my, no. the state of my morals these days, but um, <laughs> I never thought it was ladled on too heavily, nor do I believe it should be. Well, it, it's as I said, it's certainly not graphic, but it it occurs it, it occurs more regularly than it does in historical nonfiction writing, where well, of course, of sources course. don't tell us much about it. it, it do you think that right. adds? Do you think that's part of the appeal of the books? No, I really don't. Um, I think what people respond to are characters, characters that they care about. And that may include what the characters do in the bedroom or out behind the barn, but still it's the character that people care about. I have a couple of friends in New York who are um, multiple Tony Award-winning authors and composers who have been working on, for the last eight or nine years, a musical theater adaption of North and South. I doubt that it will ever come to fruition, but it's fun to watch it. to see these things grow, and there's no sex depicted on stage, at least as is planned now. Uh, it's the characters. It's Ori Main, Patrick Swayze, who, God love him, was a pretty good, pretty good actor. And uh, when they made the television series, he was constantly worrying about whether he gave a good performance or not. Um, and how much but, input did you have into the the miniseries? Oh, very very little. Although I had a good relationship with David Walper, the late David Walper, who produced Roots and the Thornbirds and some other notable miniseries. Um, I met David early on when he optioned the books, and uh, 
I, I didn't have script approval, but I did read the scripts, and every time there was something that I thought was a little off, I would hold up my hand, and uh, we'd argue about it, David and I, and, and frequently I lost. Sometimes I won. But I had no uh, official role in the production, uh, um, except as an interested observer. Um, my wife, as a matter of fact, appears in one scene in the first 12-hour segment. She has a walk-on huh. toward the end uh, on the arm of Hal Holbrook. She's uh-huh. Mary Todd Lincoln. No lines, uh-huh. <laughs> just atmosphere, as they called her, and they paid her accordingly. Uh-huh. But... Um, I was close to the production. We went up to Charleston. They were there about, the production company was in Charleston about six months. So I, we would go up there from time to time. And as I say, I had no real control over the production, nor did I want any. But I was interested to see how it was going along. It turned out reasonably well. Mm-hmm. Um, there, they did pour more emphasis on the characters and what they did out behind the barn or in the bedroom, but uh, that's television. Well, that was television at the time. So uh, that was my role. It was not a key role in the production. I was, as I say, an interested observer. But it sounds like you were satisfied with the outcome. Well, reasonably. Uh-huh. I, I remain David's good friend, uh, before he died, and and I wouldn't like to say anything mm. <laughs> to the contrary. There were a lot of things I didn't like about the shows, but I always tell whenever I lecture to a writing class or a convention, I always say, "Look, if you sell your work to Hollywood and you cash the check, you might as well realize there are going to be changes mm-hmm. unless you have absolute control." Well, absolute control is very rare these days or any time. So I didn't anticipate much except for, I hope, a good production. And it turned out reasonably well. I mean, there's obviously the the challenge of compressing literally thousands of pages into uh, into a visual format. You can't tell everything. You've got to make choices. True, and it's a matter of the budget, and it's a matter of uh, what actors are available and locations and so forth and so on. Right. So um, I was pretty well satisfied with the first 12 hours. The second 12 hours, a little less so, and the last six hours, based on the final book, Heaven and Hell, um, it was more or less tossed away by the network, and uh, I didn't think it was an outstanding production, but... As I say, if if you put the money in the bank, um, it's sort of a instruction to keep your mouth quiet. Ah, well, that, that's that's the deal one makes. The uh, I, I know I've, I've talked to other novelists who've seen their work uh, turned into to historical movies, and who in some cases were extremely unhappy with the outcome, uh, and and felt that it had really gone away from what they'd written, but maybe not so much here. You mentioned the strength of your characters as one of the, the, the primary sources of appeal. And it struck me near the end, as I was reading North and South this week, that it is filled with the real difficult, ambiguous moral choices that 
people face in real life. Uh, you have, you have competing loyalties you know, to family, to region, to country, to morality. And in that, that I, I can see would be very appealing, but the characters themselves are, are rarely in shades of gray. The bad people are really bad and the good people all have good motives, even if they don't always make good choices. Mm-hmm. It, it, did, did, did you draw them that way? Yes, I did. Um, we were living at the time uh, that I wrote the trilogy in uh, South, South Carolina. Uh, I'm a Yankee. I was born and raised in Chicago, so I'm not a, a uh, native South Carolinian. I was aware that the war was being fought. My goal was to try to paint an accurate picture, to try to understand, particularly on the southern side, what their concerns were without ever once, ever, without ever accepting what Bruce Catton so eloquently called the indigestible lump of slavery. Um, and I took that mental stance before I began writing, and, and it carried me through the book pretty well. Well, there's, there's no question that uh, th- that slavery is a, a primary focus of what the two sides are fighting over, and that and I thought was was a very clever thing to do, in in the sense that the the argument is still heard today by some that the Civil War is not primarily about slavery, that uh, states' rights or uh, federalism yeah, I know. or. Uh, and and no no serious historian will will argue that slavery was was not the primary uh, focus of the war or, or the cause of the war. At the same time, historians all say, and this comes out clearly in your book, that that's not simply to say the North was right and good and just and freedom loving, and the South was evil and bad and slave loving. Uh, there's plenty of racism in the North, plenty of ambiguity oh, on both sides, and, and your characters show that. But well, by simply had, focusing on slavery, you, you leave out the states' rights argument, which I would say was a good choice. My my villain in the trilogy, of course, was Elkanah Bent, mm-hmm. who in the books was uh, an Ohioan, uh, helped along in his uh, evil ways, perhaps by the fact that he was very fat, um, I've struggled with weight most of my life. Um, so that was one thing that the filmmakers changed. They brought in a very good actor named Phil Kasnoff to play Bent, but he played him with an outrageous Southern accent. He played him as a Southerner. Now, that was one thing I didn't like because uh, I thought a truer reflection of the period would have been if Bent were an Ohioan. Now, I do know after the war in Reconstruction, the most repressive state as far as equality for blacks was <laughs> Connecticut. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, so it's it's a gray, gray record. It's a mixed picture. But when they throw things up on the screen, uh, they have to cartoon them a little more. Uh, much more, maybe. Um, so there were some areas that I really was not too happy about, and that's one of them. You know, I, I googled uh, a few scenes from the the trilogy as I was reading this week, and I, I saw the one where Bent is introduced on the the drill ground at West Point. And the first thing that struck me was, hey, this guy's supposed to be from Ohio. 
And I, I read the notes and saw that in the, the TV version, they make him from Georgia. Uh, but, but Bent is an example. Uh, you mentioned he struggles with weight, but he also is alcoholic, sexual predator, liar, coward, yes, child yes. molester, murderer. <laughs> Everything bad, which, <laughs> which we seem to have all around us even today. Uh, but but all wrapped in one package. Certainly, he he is a a an all purpose villain. And in your, there were some psychopathic women uh, who represent again both sides of the the slavery argument. Uh, Ashton uh, and Virgilia are both. Uh, I think psychopathic is not too strong a word, but you draw one from the north and one from the south. Well, I I particularly wanted to make Virgilia uh, not only a fiery abolitionist, but um, deeper than that, perhaps uh, motivated by her hormones and uh, who knows what else. Mm-hmm. So I, I liked creating those women as uh, flawed characters. Virginia certainly was, uh, and I was happy when the book treated them that way. Um, I'm not sure they came across that way in the films. Uh, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But uh, I know how I felt when I'd finished writing the trilogy that uh, I had done the right thing. Well, well they are certainly uh, uh, characters that, that it, it is easy to... Uh, you know, to, well, to hate them. I mean, they're, they're, they're just really bad they, and they get worse. Uh, every time you turn the page, what are they going to do next? Now, well, I have always, uh, Jerry, I've always liked villains and so do readers. Readers love people that they can hate, such as Richard III, mm-hmm. uh, Macbeth. Um, they, they love people like that and, uh, a fiction writer would ignore that at his or her peril, uh, and I never have. I, I love great villains, and I love the chance to be villainous on paper and not get arrested. <laughs> a good outlet for those those impulses. Well, we're going to take another short break. Right. Again, we're talking today with John Jakes, author of North and South, the, the trilogy that begins with the book of that title, and many other historical novels. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Best-selling authors, find tantalizing new books, learn the latest healthy living tips, and be inspired to coach yourself to success on Star Style. Be the star you are every Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific Time on World Talk Radio. 
the Oprah of the airwaves, Cynthia Bryan, and her health hero daughter, Heather Brittany, fire up the airwaves with upbeat, positive, life-changing talk radio. It's the Power Hour on Star Style. Be the star you are. Thursdays from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Come play with us. listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and our guest today is John Jakes, author of North and South, also On Secret Service, and Savannah, or A Gift for Mr. Lincoln, and numerous other Civil War era novels, as well as other historical novels uh, from the Revolutionary period and other times in our history, and we've been talking about the 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 responsibility of writing history for for tens of millions, the secret to appealing to a wide audience with characters uh, that vivid characters, uh, villains that are truly evil. Uh, John, what what about uh, influences in your writing? In in the afterward to North and South, you mentioned uh, Bruce Catton, who you you quoted earlier in in our show. Yes. Uh, he, I was thinking of his Centennial History, Centennial Trilogy, the Centennial mm-hmm. History of the Civil War. As I was reading North and South, they both share uh, the fact that the first volume gets you right up to the battle at Fort Sumter, and right. they're they're that that when I read. Catton's trilogy that really made an impression on me that uh, to understand the Civil War you need to spend a lot of time looking at the 1840s and 50s. Yes, to, at the antebellum period, you certainly and, do. And you did the same thing here. Uh, was Catton a major influence on you? I would say so, in the sense that I thought he was a reasonable appraiser of the Civil War. Um, I thought he was very fair. He saw bravery in the South. Although, as I say, he didn't swallow what he called the indigestible lump of slavery. He saw bravely in the, bravery in the South. Uh, and since I was living in South Carolina at the time, I uh, find myself uh, having adopted that uh, point of view. Um, as I said earlier, my point with the Southern characters in that trilogy was never to approve of what they were thinking or doing, or saying, but to try to understand them. Well, you copy uh, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe in Uncle Tom's Cabin, of course, has her villain is, is the the overseer, Simon Legree, is a Yankee, and you have a Yankee overseer as well uh, yes. at the beginning of North and South. Right. So so you're, you're, you're arguing that it's not the, the slavery, uh, as Lincoln said in the second inaugural, the uh, is the woe that came to the country through through both sections together? Right. Now, I think that's correct. Uh, go ahead. So, in in well, I'd, I'd ask initially about Catton as an influence. Are there other Civil War authors uh, that that you particularly like or? Well, Jerry, if if we want to go right way back to when I was a kid, I started. <clears throat> on this history kick, never knowing that I would be writing about history, uh, 
watching Errol Flynn historical movies. Ah. Uh, I always say I was poisoned by Errol <laughs> Flynn movies and the Max Siner musical scores that went with them. Uh, but they they uh, gave me a sense of the excitement of history. They certainly didn't give me the facts. Uh, when I was long about, well, I had a first first year in high school, I guess, I came across Joseph Elshelder, who was a writer of juvenile fiction around 100 years ago, and he had a series of several Civil War novels, um, as I best remember them, dealing with a northern boy and a southern boy. And I read those with great, great interest. Uh, as I've gone on through reading other things, uh, I began to find out how dishonest many of the <laughs> historical <laughs> treatments were. Um, one that just comes to mind is a movie that Errol Flynn made in 1940 called Santa Fe Trail, uh, in which Errol played Jeb Stewart and Ronald Reagan played George Armstrong Custer. George Armstrong Custer was a sort of a mealy-mouthed defender of slavery in that film. Huh. Uh, that led me to what, in the 50s and 60s, I began to call mentally history a la Polo Lounge. The Polo Lounge, of course, being the bar at the famous Beverly Hills Hotel. Uh, awesome. Well, who cares if it's not accurate, though? That's, we're making a movie here. Uh, so there were many influences, and I was to say, I've always read Civil War history for entertainment, really, and for information, never dreaming I would be deeply involved in, in that subject. Uh, so it's been a gradual evolution, but it goes way back to the early Errol Flynn movies that I saw in the Allsheller books. Well, I think well, a lot of us... Have, we're introduced to history through either popular fiction or, or juvenile literature or movies. It, as I was reading again, uh, North and South this week, I was thinking about the fact that my wife, when I told her, uh, I would be talking with you this week, she was quite, uh, interested, said, Oh, you know, finally somebody I've heard of. Uh, she's read, uh, the trilogy, read it when it came out in the 80s and, and had read others of your books and you said she could picture them on her shelf, uh, when she was, uh, younger at home. So, but she and I don't go to historical movies together because I'm the kind of guy who sits there and says, oh, they wouldn't have said that. Oh, they never did that until she has yeah, to hit right. me. And, uh, now as I, but I didn't have that reaction reading North and South. I, I was not going through nitpicking saying, oh, you got that detail wrong. Because you get the details right uh, uh, to the extent that it's about details, but it's about characters, not about details. That's that's yeah. correct. Um, it, the details have to be as right as I could make them, as I said, during uh, um, a short writing, relatively short writing time of a year or two. Uh, I, I could, I suppose, spend all my life on one book, but uh, I'm not that kind of person. Uh, so... You're quite right. The, uh, the details were important, but the characters always stayed in the foreground. I was curious. Have you seen Lincoln? Yes, I was going to ask you about that. What did you think? Well, here, I, I live in Sarasota, Florida, where we have a wonderful, wonderful regional repertory company. 
They just opened about a week ago one of my favorite shows, 1776, mm -hmm. which, if you remember, deals with a crucial vote on a major subject in American history. Right. Having seen Lincoln immediately after that, I said, well, you know, I've seen this before in another <laughs> format. Um, I thought it was a very, I thought Lincoln was a very, as they came out of the theater, I said to my wife, worthy movie. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the film didn't move me as much as I thought it might, and I was a little disappointed in that. It, that's a, it, it doesn't pack a huge emotional impact. To me, it was, it made me come away thinking, I wonder if there's a limit to how far you can express, uh, a, a, a historical story academically through the medium of film. And if this movie pushed against that limit, that it was well, so it, it, accurate. That's, that's a good point. I spoke to, uh, a gentleman I met for the first time last week after he'd seen the movie, he was a lawyer, he said he was a Lincoln specialist, that he read a lot about Lincoln, and I said, what did you think of the film? He said, well, he said, I thought it was a very good episode of the History Channel. Well, wow. you know, for people who have, for better or worse, read a lot of history, um, that that may be right. Um, I sometimes think overexposure is is not great because it robs the subject of the freshness that it ought to have. But no. that plus the combination of having seen a revival of 1776 that was absolutely wonderful just a, moment, mm. a week before, uh, always one of my favorite musicals, um, I, I think I had the odds stacked against me when I went to see Lincoln. Perhaps I'll see it again when... It comes out on DVD, and, and my opinion will change. Some of the performances I thought were absolutely wonderful. I, Tommy Lee Jones as Thad Stevens was just a knockout. <laughs> he, um, he steals the show. He, he's great. Did you think I, so? I, I, 1776 is an interesting comparison. The the movie that came to my mind afterwards was All the President's Men, uh -huh. because both movies are very much a Washington-located procedural drama. To which the audience term. knows the outcome, and yet you're still tense, wondering, are they going to make it? And well, that, that was I, exactly I, the case with 1776. It's a procedural drama. That's a good. Mm -hmm. That's a good term. I'll remember it. And 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 yet and again, there you know they're going to sign the declaration, but but you get caught up in the the, the tension. Let me ask about another historical author because you you mentioned him, uh, uh, Charles Dickens. What yes what. How how does he influence your work? Well, I have always placed Dickens at the top of the pantheon of writers in the English language. Um, he is one of those rare people who was good at telling a story, good at creating characters, wonderful with language. He happened to be a genius. Uh, all of us are not so lucky, but I have always worshipped him for that reason um, and tried to throw in what I could uh, an eccentric character now and then in weak imitation of Mr. Dickens' skill with that. I, I suppose the way he creates the 19th century London as the interlocking setting for all these novels so mm -hmm. that I, I find I, I can't remember which novel goes in which book, but the uh, the 
there's something of that in in the North and South trilogy where there are so many interlocking characters who who start to show up and and get into each other's stories after a while. Well, it, it probably is so, but I. I, I came to Dickens late in life. Um, I, I didn't read him in college. Uh, I didn't read anything very serious <laughs> except what was required. Uh, and, and I've grown to appreciate him, so I do regard his genius highly. Let me go from the, the past to the future. You, you mentioned, tossed off in our first segment, uh, a reference to uh, e-readers or, or uh, yeah. new ways of reading books. Right. Where how are people going to read North and South twenty years from now? What, what do you? Where is the book world headed? You know, if I were able to answer that, I could rush up to New York and get a <laughs> high-paying job in publishing right now, which is in complete disarray. Um, we're going through a period of fundamental change in the publishing business. Uh, companies like uh, Open Road Media have come in with their e-books. Um, my my lawyer was a little slow to get on the bandwagon because he wanted to make the right uh, sort of arrangement. Uh, but it's the wave of the future. Uh, the Kindle from Amazon, a lot of people don't like Amazon. There's no doubt that it's the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Uh, nothing to be done about it. And my wife and I talk about it regularly. It strikes me sometimes that Amazon and all the changes, the apocalyptic changes in, in the publishing business, uh, are rather like the disappearance of the buggy or the buggy whip. Nobody liked it, especially the buggy manufacturers, but there wasn't much to be done. And I have no idea, to answer your question, what people, how people will be reading in 20 years. No idea. Nor do the executives in the publishing business. They don't want to admit that, but it's true. Um, things are in a state of disarray, and no one knows exactly where they're going, except I'm sure ebooks are here to stay, and they're becoming mm-hmm. a larger and larger portion of the uh, reading market. What about writing? Do you do you write on? Uh... A, a tablet and a computer, no, a computer typewriter computer i've done a number of plays uh, which i will write in longhand on a tablet because they don't take they're not so many words you don't have to worry about it but i switched over to computer in the late 80s and i've been at it ever since now i have some colleagues who wouldn't touch a computer if you gave them a million dollars but um I, I have found it a tremendous boon. Uh, for one thing, it enables rewriting, much more rewriting than, than the old style, writing on yellow paper and then going back and correcting it and doing it over. Um, the computer allows you to do 10 times, 20 times, 50 times that amount of, of writing, of rewriting. And as people have said, Good writing is rewriting. That's so right. I've been happy to adopt the computer a long time ago. Are you working on any historical fiction right now? I have I have one, but since it's not finished, <laughs> I don't talk uh, about it. So it's something we can look forward to. With my lawyer. That's about it, yeah. Right. Wow. Well, 
I will will say it's been a real pleasure talking with you. We are unfortunately at the end of our hour. It always comes too quickly here on Civil War Talk Radio. You are right. It does go quickly. It, doesn't it? It just amazes me every week. And I, normally I say listeners go out and buy the book, but if there's anyone listening to the show who doesn't already have or know where to find a copy of North and South, they're listening Absolutely. to the wrong show. Uh but go back and reread it or uh, download the uh, the video or, or find some way to get back in touch with a great American storyteller, uh, John Jakes, who has brought history to tens of millions. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Jerry, it's been a pleasure for me. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the world talk radio network for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit worldtalkradio.com the world talk radio network where the world comes to talk the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the world talk radio network its staff and management